Hello, and welcome to another episode of Walk-In's Welcome. I'm Michael Russell. I'm Gary Okazaki. And it's our first pod of the new year. Hello, everybody. Uh, how are you, Gary? Uh, God, I have the sniffles, and so do you, too. Yeah, we a both, little bit. Yeah. A little bit. A little bit. Not too bad. Just a little sniffle. I think I'm getting over it. I get the cough is the last thing to go. How was your New Year's? Or should I say New Year's Eve? It was, it was fun. I went to Notre Girl for the Super Hardcore. Oh. It was my meal. It was the one I went to in the summer was the best meal I've had in Portland this year. I went with Pete and son, Pete, Peter Cho and Sen Young Park. And um, I went with my friend Amy this time. Smoked a little joint. Whoa. Yeah. Got high. <laughs> How was the food? Time. Food was great. Really? Better oh, than yeah. that summer meal or about the same? Um, I actually think maybe the New Year's Eve meal was better than the during the summer. Wow. Maybe that's recency bias. You know how Ryan is. I mean, like, everything's going to be executed at a very very high level regardless you know so it was great that sounds pretty good yeah i uh stayed at the house we had some friends over oh and drank vodka thank you for inviting me i couldn't i was just so tired (laughs) i didn't make i did not make it till midnight i figured i figured you wouldn't come and if you had i probably would have been asleep i i went to bed at 10 45 oh yeah i was pretty good i that's kind of when i left yeah I have a wake-up call at 5.30 a.m. every morning. So. <laughs> that, Forever. That's late for me. Yeah. Um, so today, we are going to talk about the most important, most influential, not necessarily best, restaurants of the decade across America. And we, we, we might not have eaten at some of the restaurants we mentioned. I've eaten at most of them. I tried to pick places that I'd eaten at, but I think one of the f- places I picked is not. So, about the same. Okay. Um, before we get to the actual restaurants, I wanted to have a little discussion with you about, you know, what has changed in the past decade in terms of dining specifically in America. And I think the place to start is that things have gotten a lot more casual. Every new restaurant that's opened, especially the past five years, has talked up their approachability, their accessibility. Um, Fast casual became a buzzword this decade. And counter service restaurants became a pretty big deal, at least in the Northwest. Um, Why do you, I'm curious if you know, like why has, why have things moved to a more casual direction? I'm, it, it it surprises me because I'd be, it would seem to make sense if, economically speaking, the country had struggled during this past decade, but we'd have had uninterrupted economic growth from 2008, 2009 onward to this point in time. So I don't, I, I, I'm kind of flabbergasted. I mean, people have talked about the death of fine dining for years and that business model probably has never made sense. They've always it's always tough when you chart when you're at the highest level of cost. And I guess with fast casual, the business model makes more sense. It can you can maybe replicate it, open up more fast casual restaurants. Um, what do you think? You know, it's a great question, and I don't really know the answer. I I think. When I think back on the kind of restaurants that my parents probably thought of as like event restaurants or special occasion restaurants, 
I think of sort of big, grand rooms, beautiful dining rooms, white linen tablecloths, um, maybe servers in tuxedos, and, you know, career servers. Maybe they're assholes, maybe they're not. Um, Very quiet spaces where, you know, the food is probably French, and, you know, you, you don't talk very loud. It's hushed is the word I think of a lot. Right. And... In that context, I cannot really imagine wanting to go out to eat like that um, <laughs> today because when you go out to eat now it's and, and you want to have a celebration, you want it to be fun. You want there to be music. You want it to be lively. I mean, look at Eam here in Portland, the Thai barbecue restaurant that's packed every night. Like that place is a jam. It's like going to a party even when they're, you know, not hosting uh, Turkey and the Wolf like they were two weeks ago uh, for a sandwich pop-up. It's still fun. It's always fun. That's that's kind of funny that in my meals of the decade, which I hope we can I can list toward the end of it, but are they are mostly the fine dining, ultra quiet. Um, many of them are from you know, Paris type three Michelin star experiences. <laughs> okay, so what do you what appeals to you about that? Those rooms, the grand rooms, like Le Maurice isn't on my list, but eating at Le Maurice or Le Sanc or Alano Paris, or Alain Ducasse, the Plaza Etienne. Those rooms, just they're, they're like castles. And the service is always so spot on. Granted, it can be a little bit stilted and formal, but I think it, that's... Or snooty. It's become less so. Like It's not like that anymore. Maybe in years past, it was like that. Okay. And the food, albeit ridiculously expensive, it's usually, you know, pretty darn incredible um so i don't know i just it's a special you know my special occasion is basically you know 200 days a year because that's kind of how i eat probably 200 days of the year is that type the other you know 166 165 days is more casual i guess i don't know Domino's, we're ready for your ad dollars when you want to uh <laughs> put an ad on this yeah, podcast last week. no free ads okay um you know What's really interesting about the past decade is, you know, you did have this thing where fine dining started becoming kind of passe. Young people certainly are not interested in that sort of dining, you know, as a group anymore. Um, I disagree. You know why I disagree? Go ahead. Because when I go to two and three Michelin star restaurants, I, this is the weirdest thing. I Around the world. I'm surprised how young some of how young some of these diners are. They're like in their twenties. Huh. They're mostly Asian, and a lot of them are like women, female diners who are dining together. Like two female diners, probably from Hong Kong or mainland China. So, how who, old are we talking about here? Twenty three, twenty four. Uh-huh. I remember eating a saison earlier this decade, maybe two thousand sixteen. I was sitting next to uh, these two, you know, twenty one year old college students whose father probably had a lot of money and you know we we're talking about you know where they dined like this, it wasn't unusual for them to eat at that level um so yeah it's it's you know it's you'd be surprised how many young asians there are eating super fine dining i i hear that and that's an interesting thing i, I mean 
that, Young Asians. especially at the at the global three Michelin star level. But I think in America, I just like where do you, where would you want to celebrate a birthday or an anniversary? Has changed pretty radically right. for someone who's say yeah. twenty eight or thirty seven. People don't want to go to you know, the super expensive, super stuffy places right. anymore. I think we can say that pretty safely. I don't know. I, I, that's a, it's interesting that you're pushing back against that, but at the same time, you've had younger people have started spending more money, more, a greater percentage of their income eating out than ever before. I think it passed the tipping point of 50% for millennials where just a few years ago, where they are now spending more than half of their income eating out rather than cooking at home. Well, I think the idea of fine dining has changed nowadays in the sense that you have fine dining where it's there is a casual aspect to it. Usually it can be like, a, usually it's a counter and uh, the chef will come out, cook it, like bring out the food. And the, um, the, some of the runners are actual cooks. Right. And so there's a discussion between the cooks and the diners. So and it's, and it, and it's, and it's changed in that respect. So it's more approachable, accessible. It's more fun. Right. Like I had a blast at um, Ernst in Berlin. It's owned by two Vancouver, BC um, people who moved to Germany. And the younger one is like 26 years old. He got a Michelin star at Ernst at like 24, 25. Dylan uh, Watson Braun. And that was one of the most fun experiences I had this year. It was just a blast. We all sat around. Like, there were like 14 of us sitting around the little counter. And the, we just really connected. The, the staff really connected with the diners. Huh. They made it, it was 40 dishes over two and a half hours. And it was just, just a good time. Gagan. I know a lot of people hate Gagan in Bangkok, which is now closed. I think um, Anand Gagan's opening another restaurant in Bangkok. But that was... That was a blast. I mean, 12 seats, about four, you know, 30 to 40 dishes over two and a half hours. And it was just, you know, it was, it was a blast. It, it's interesting because, you know, that's right. The, the, the highest level of cooking, the most elaborate, the most ambitious level of cooking is now refined mostly to these 12 to 14 seat chef counters. Mm-hmm. And that has eliminated the, 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 you know, it's cut down on costs greatly because you have a smaller labor pool. Like you said, cooks are running dishes. That means like, you know, you're hiring one less person, potentially one less salary. And you're not asked to fill a room of 40 to 60 to 80 people every night. You can just, you know, if you can get 12 people in the door four nights a week, you're in the black, I think. Right. 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 So it is interesting that we're spending a greater percentage of our money on eating out. And yet when we do eat out, we people who aren't global food, you know, global foodies, like my podcasting partner here seem to be wanting to spend their money on something more casual, but people will still spend money. I mean, like large format, large format, which is such an ugly term that became a thing in the 2010s. I mean, stemming, I think largely from Momofuku, right? You're out, you're going out to eat. You're having a few small plates, another ugly term. And then you're ordering a giant, you know, pork roast or whatever it is and it's something like over the top meaty grotesque and everyone's digging into it together and it's kind of fun i mean but people young people who might blanch at spending 150 dollars a head to do a tasting menu might end up spending 150 dollars a head on cocktails and 
over the top, you know, suckling pig, you know, feasts or whatever. Right? Right. The duck at Pajoli. The $160 duck dish at Pajoli. <laughs> it's fun. Duck press. <laughs> Dave Barron. Love you, Dave. Um, anyway, that's kind of a, that's an interesting thing. So should we get to the restaurants? Yeah, let's get decades, most important influential restaurants. And you can explain our format, how we decided to do Yeah, it. we've done this before, but we sort of did like a round robin draft where... Gary chose number one. I chose number two and three. Gary chose four and five and on down the list till 10. And, um, you know, we already did the draft. Uh, we did that at Gary's favorite sushi restaurant. No, not really. <laughs> well, no. I mean, it's favorite my favorite. It's one of my favorite. It was one of my favorite conveyor belt. But Ohana in Portland, Oregon has usurped the role. <laughs> you see, you usurped the title of um, my favorite conveyor belt sushi place in Portland. Ohana over Sushi Chio right now. Um so I think we should start with 10 and go down to one. Does that right. work for you? Yeah. Okay. So as it turns out, I chose 10 and I chose in situ in San Francisco. Um, funnily enough, you've eaten in this place a lot more than me, but I just felt like this restaurant was such a brilliant concept. And we can talk about some of the places that came before it that maybe influenced it. But the idea, um, the idea is that, Chef Corey Lee, from who's probably better known for Bennu, uh, his three Michelin star San Francisco restaurant, was asked to open a restaurant inside the San Francisco Museum of Modern Art. Yes. And what he did, which I think is like the most brilliant restaurant idea of the decade, was he essentially created a museum for food. He asked chefs from literally around the world to teach him how to cook their signature dishes, their best dishes, uh, whether it's, you know, shrimp and grits or, you know, fried chicken from a place in Oakland or, you know, some modernist dish from Spain or a new Nordic dish from Copenhagen, whatever that might be. He went granular, you know, into how to cook the dish and then brought it to a restaurant in San Francisco and made a menu that's just a compendium of some of the most celebrated dishes of the world where you can go in one place and order a la carte. You can order, you know, you could go and spend 20 bucks and get one fabulous dish, or you could spend $150 and try five or six of the greatest dishes in the world. And it's such a clever idea and it was executed so well. Um, and just the way it fit in with the concept of a museum works so well for me that that is number 10 on our restaurants of the decade list. It opened in, uh, NC2 opened in June of 2016. I was there on the second day of its opening. And I've been there back about 20 times since. I've been twice in the last like month. I of Since it opened in June of 2016, the only restaurant I've been in the world more than NC2 is Hanok. There's no other Portland restaurant that's that. That's there. I mean, that's number two or three or four. It's it goes Hanok number one most visits since June of 2016. Then NC2 number two. I love NC2, but my only issue with NC2 having it on this list is I, I had another restaurant on my list that to me was a precursor and was more influential, and in that I think it actually influenced Corey to open up NC2, and that's next in Chicago. Um, when did next open? What? When did Next open? 2011. Okay. 
2011 or 2012. And the concept that Grant Atkins created there was during the year, there'd be three different themes. And the first theme he ever did was 1906 Paris. And so every few months, so he'd create uh, dishes from that era. One theme was childhood, which is a, was very conceptual. So he created dishes that um, elicited things from your childhood. Like uh, there was a lunchbox, lunchbox dish that had like grape juice in it. Well, you know, like those a squeeze thing, squeeze thing, grape juices. That was, I mean, so, and he's done El Bui. So I thought that was such a unique concept at the time. It was, in, it was difficult to get reservations back in those days to get at Next. But I just thought that was so cool and so awesome back then. And when Institute did their thing, I thought it was, I, I loved it because it was so close. And I loved the concept even more. So, but I just thought that Next was more influential than Institute. Yeah, and I mean, I think we're taking kind of a, a I mean, influential is one of the aspects and how I pick the restaurants on my list. But for me, the the concept of Institute was the, the sort of the brilliance behind it overcame the fact that maybe it hasn't inspired 17 clones or anything like right. that. And you hit the nail on the head for me for why I would put Institute on over Next, which is that you can just walk into NC2. I mean, there's even a more casual front portion of the restaurant, but you could, there's no shortage of reservations. It's not like with Next where, you know, only a certain lucky few can get in. Right. That, well, I think Next isn't what it used to be as far as <laughs> difficulty getting in. But sure. I, I, you know, I, I prefer Institute over, over Next just personally. So that was a good choice for number 10. I mean, it's, even though it's not on my 10, I, I, love, I love that restaurant. Number nine is... A restaurant that I actually don't love. I, I went there once and I didn't have a great meal, but I understand how important or influential it is. And that's Date Bird Provisions in San Francisco. And the reason I think it's so influential is because at the time it was kind of a unique format. It was like American dim sum. That's right. And it, it did influence other restaurants around the country. The one that comes to my mind, and I've been this restaurant too was Emmer and Rye in Austin. But I'm sure there are many, many people who copied that format. I just, you know, I... Oh, up and down the West Coast, right. at least you'd hear about right. a new American dim sum restaurant opening every three to six months for a while there. And it is still one of the hardest, it may be the hardest reservation in San Francisco to still get. So it's held up incredibly well. I've been told by other people who've been there many times, many more times than I have, that... I just I had one of those nights where just it just didn't work. I mean, they, people who I've talked to just love that in general, love that place. I love Stuart Brosia and Nicole Krasinski's other restaurant, The Progress. I love that restaurant, like love it. Yeah. So I don't know. It's one of those things, but I I do admit that it is one of the most important restaurants of the last decade. Yeah, I ate there and waited in line, and you know it was a long wait and. I think it was one of those things where we got there at just before they opened, and by the time we put our name in, we had they were told us like eight thirty p.m. So we went to a bar around the corner, which is you know one of the last remaining black-owned bars in what was once a very African-American neighborhood in San Francisco. Had a couple drinks, watched some blues, and then came back and had our meal. The thing I remember the most is like potato chips with creme fraiche and, and salmon roe, I think, that you kind of like built your own little, uh, I don't know, kind of Russian style. Uh, like you would, potato chips replaced blini, essentially. 
and we ended up making a version of that at home quite a bit. So it was a, we had a great time. Um, I don't know if it stood out for me as like a meal of the decade per se, but it was a lot of fun and you're absolutely right. It was very influential in its moment. I don't know that anyone's trying to do American dim sum anymore. Right. Even the best dim sum plates places seem to be moving away from carts. Uh, even though everyone loves them, it's probably just for freshness's sake. It's better to, you know, cook dim sum to order rather than having it be wheeled around a room for a couple of hours. When I went to Hong Kong, I didn't, I didn't see, I didn't eat at many places, dim sum places that actually had the carts. Yeah. You just bring, bring out the food, you order the food and you bring it out. So are we only choosing San Francisco restaurants? Oh no. Number eight is a restaurant from New York and it's wild there. New York. Wow. Well, you yeah. don't say it's uh, it's could be, one of the, I don't know if it was, it's not one of the first natural wine bars, but um, it's uh, Fabian von Husk and Jeremiah Stone's restaurant. They opened up Contra before, um, opening up Wild Air. And it's just a fun restaurant uh, doing incredibly good food. And it's a wine bar. And I, I know there are other wine bars that maybe came before it. I think the Four Horsemen in Brooklyn came before it, correct? Yeah, and I think there's a couple in Paris that would probably. Well, I'm not. Yeah, maybe. this is the yeah. United States, like La Dauphine. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm f- for the United States was the one of the most uh, popular originally. Was was that the Four Horsemen? Did they kind of like start it all? I feel like they opened around the same time. Am I am I wrong about that? I'm, I'm not sure, but yeah. I, I think Wild Air is to me. It's I've never been the Four Horsemen. The reason I picked Wild Air is just because you know Fabian and. Jeremiah, the friend of the pod, really, yeah, friend of the pod, and also just really talented chefs. Yeah. I, I have never been to the Four Horsemen. I've been to Wild Air, and I think the food at Wild Air is just really, really good, especially for bar food. Right, right. That's really interesting. Um, it's a great pick just because the natural wine bar movement has since taken America, or at least the coastal cities, by storm. And I, I mean, Portland is certainly a hotbed of that now as well. It took us a few more years, but. Uh, you know, we have places like Bar Norman. Bar Norman comes to mind. Lacave. Lacave. Dame. Dame. Um, there are more. Okay, Omens. Okay, Omens. The Cafe Castagna Bar. Yes. And one of the great wine bars of Portland. So, I mean, there, there have been a rush of these natural wine bars opening, some of them with really good food just in the past couple of years. Um, that was the 2018 was the year of wine bars. In Portland, Oregon. It's an exciting place to drink wine, if you like wine. Right. That was, that was my choice. So moving on to number six. Number seven. Sorry. That was number eight. Uh, number seven for me is a place that you and I sort of ate at together in the Kinda. sense that we went to a pop-up in Portland for this restaurant, but it is Superiority Burger. So Superiority Burger is a restaurant started by a former top pastry chef, Brooks Headley. And he opened a vegetarian restaurant. It's not really a restaurant. Yeah. Well, how would you describe it? It's like a fast, casual... Hole in the wall. Hole in the wall. Fast food? I've been there. Have you been to the one in New York? I haven't, no. I, I did go after our visit. After he came here, I went there a few months later. Our pop-up was good. I think the bun was not great on the veggie burger, which kind of brought everything down just a little bit for me. But the, some of the side dishes were really exciting. But it's less about the how good the food is and more about superiority burger representing a sort of breakthrough moment for vegetarian food where 
a restaurant that was capturing a ton of hype and a ton of praise, including a full starred review in the New York Times, was not, you know, it was fast food and it was purely vegetarian, no meat on the menu. And that's something that we've seen all across America since then, is that a restaurant doesn't necessarily have to serve meat to be the hot new thing. Vegetables have been in throughout the decade and, you know, People, Josh Ozersky wrote a whole story about how great vegetables are, even at steakhouses, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, for a restaurant to like do away with meat entirely is pretty radical. And for people to embrace it like they did with Superiority Burger makes it one of the most influential restaurants of the decade for me. Well, one reason I thought it was so influential because it was, it's fast food. Uh, There are other vegetarian restaurants out there that are doing like veg in in philadelphia rich landau's place yeah uh, amanda cohen's dirt candy which i think is closed or closed uh, but for many years it was you know a tasting menu vegetarian restaurant so they were out there it's just that what brooks did what brooks heavily did was put it within the model of fast food which i thought was really really cool i'm surprised he hasn't opened like 20 of them there's like one <laughs> I, thought, I thought there'd be like 20 by now but I, I enjoy it I mean I have uh, vegan friends who absolutely love Superiority Burger like love it my next restaurant on this list number 6 is one I'm sure you'll agree with um, <laughs> it's an oyster bar in Seattle called Walrus and the Carpenter and I put it on the list it's making me mad. I'm not even sure if it's that influential. You know, I kept waiting for a wave of sort of walrus style um, oyster bars to open around the country. And I'm not sure many really have. I mean, it's a very clean space with white tiles. Okay, actually, maybe there have been a lot of these opening now that I think about it. But Wasn't Olympia Oyster Bar here like that? A little bit, yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure how much they directly, you know, were looking at uh, walrus and the carpenter, but... Uh, this is Renee Erickson's sort of breakout restaurant that landed on Bon Appetit's top 10 list the year it opened. I think, did I write down the date? 2010? It was in, Se- it's in Seattle. Hmm. And, um, you know, it wasn't just about the oysters. There were really fun seafood side dishes, too. But when I walked in there, I just thought, okay, she has created a new style of oyster bar. It's not New Orleans. It's not New York. Yes, it's a little bit French, but it's very Northwest. It was packed. The place was bumping. I remember them playing David Bowie, and everything was fun. I took a friend of mine who had never had an oyster before. He lives in Seattle. And like three months later, his uh, wife texted me to say, okay, Joe has since eaten every oyster bar in Seattle. (laughs) So he just fell in love with oysters there. And and for me, that felt like a real moment. Of course, Renee Erickson has gone on to open a number of important Seattle restaurants, including the Whale Winds and Bateau. Which which is is what I would put on. Because I had one of my worst experiences of my life. Tell us about Wa- it, Gary. Walrus and the Carver. I'm not going to yeah, go into it. You got the floor. I'm not going to go into it. Well, I mean, it's just one of those weird things. One of those things where just nothing went right. <laughs> you walked it, in, you said, "Hey, I'm Gary the foodie. Where's my table?" Oh God, it was just. <laughs> it's, I don't think it's fair when you know someone else walks in like half an hour after you do. They order. We basically order the same thing. They get the food before I do. I don't even get my food. I, I have to like complain before I actually get my food. 
And then it's just one mishap after another. And then they said they would call me a cab. So I go outside and wait. And I'm like waiting there for 15, 20 minutes. So then I went to Staple and Fancy. And within five minutes, like I asked uh, some the bartender at Staple and Fancy to call me a cab. And within five minutes, the cab came. I said, who, call, who called this in? It says someone from Staple and Fancy. So obviously no one, the person who said they called a cab in, called a cab at Walsh and Copper never called a cab. They just mm. wanted to like screw me over. Mm. So I, I really, so I said, okay, no more Renee Erickson restaurants. But you know what? I eventually gave up and I love Bateau. I thought I would put Bateau at, in the spot that you had. In fact, I, 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 it was I on want, my honorable mention. I want Bateau to be, and we've talked about Bateau on this podcast before and the idea of you know breaking down single cows and aging them and once the certain cut is gone it's crossed off the chalkboard it's like you've taken the steak this like essential american dining experience the steakhouse and you're making it a little bit more personal and a little bit more sustainable at the same time it's remarkable i feel like there should be a bateau in every city in america you know if we're going to continue with the steakhouse model um, but I haven't seen that happen yet, so it's hard for me to put it on the list in terms of influence. Gotcha. Um, okay. Number five for me... Yes, sir. ...is Jessica Coslow's Squirrel in Los Angeles. Oh, yeah. I, you know, this would be my pick for this spot, too, actually, so you kind of stole this one from me. I originally wasn't going to put it in my top ten, much less honorable mention, and I had a discussion with Jeremy Rapinich, who wrote um, his list of the 10 most dynamic and important restaurants in the world over the last decade. So he wanted me to create a list, and he wanted me to call him, and we could talk about it. And I didn't have Squirrel on my list, but we talked about his list, and he told me about Squirrel. And, I, and, I, and then he kind of convinced me that it was one of the most important restaurants, maybe not only in the United States, but in the world. Why? Because... What he what what Jessica did was they they made breakfast a star. Who makes breakfast a star before before Jessica did? I oh, mean, like half well, the restaurants in Portland. Other than that, well, I do think she, I she do took, think it, she took that it to another there's level. There's a Portland vibe there, and when I went yeah. there uh, uh, a couple of years ago, I walked in. Someone saw I was wearing some Portland. I don't know, related, some Portland company shirt or something. And so I was like, oh, I'm from Portland. And then half the kitchen staff was like, oh, I'm from Portland too. I just moved down here. Like, I do think there's a very Portland vibe here. But Jessica obviously made it very L.A. Yeah. And it does sort of uh, embody the breezy, new California, you know, taking brunch seriously kind of aesthetic that has since birthed this whole amazing dynamic restaurant scene. She she was she I mean she made avocado toast popular. Yet we've talked about avocado avocado toast before that it probably it originated in Australia, right? They claim well, San Franciscans well, claim it too. I guess I, I think, I think Jessica went to, to I think Jessica went to Australia before yeah. she opened up. Yeah, Squirrel. yeah. It's the, I think it's pretty Australian. Yeah. yeah, but she made it cool. What Jessica did was made made brunch cool. I mean Portland, yeah, but you know what. What 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 restaurant in Portland is cooler than Squirrel? None. Right. None, unfortunately. I'm not saying I mean I, I think brunch or otherwise. I think the food is okay. Like a lot of these places, the food is, you know, I don't know. I don't think it's the be- you know, the, the the best food in the world, but they created such unique concepts that other people have gravitated 
or latched onto for whatever reason. Like, yeah, and squirrels, we have to. Like, I, no, really, and, and it's not. I mean, also, they were an early restaurant that made a dish that really captured Instagram's attention. Right. And that is the ricotta toast, which they take a, you know, a big, thick, fluffy slice of bread. They add a whole bunch of their house ricotta on top. And then they add jams on top as well. So you can get like one, two, or three different colors of jam. And when you do the two or the three, that contrast between the two jam colors is really stunning. And just basically everybody you know who's on Instagram too much has posted a photo of that. Well, that's the biggest trend over the last 10 years is social media photos, food photos, and food. And and things on toast has been a major trend too from Sydney to San Francisco. So, yeah, absolutely. My number four is Dominic Ansel Bakery. The Cronut. I mean, what do you say? That, that's all you need to say, Cronut. Uh, I mean, he you know, he could put his kids through college just by creating this one thing called the Cronut. <laughs> he he made, could put 100 kids through college. Hundreds probably. of kids now, yeah. I mean, I didn't actually have the Cronut until like a year and a half ago when I was in London, and I went to his place in London. I had been to Dominic Ansel uh, Bakery, and he has Dominic Ansel Kitchen, which is like a mile away. I've been to both places, but I never had the Cronut. Not because I couldn't get it, because I just didn't really want it at the time. Uh, but yeah, I, uh, it, was, it took the country by storm. I mean, I, was that the biggest yes. thing? Like yes. thing over the last, food thing. Biggest new food thing. Yeah, yeah la- it was. last decade. Bigger was than avocado toast, Have you ever had the Cronut? I've his never cronut. had his Cronut. No, I've you had, not had Cronuts. Cronut. I've had croissant donuts, excuse right. me. Yeah. <laughs> Because he has trademarked the the term cronut. cronut. Yeah. Right. Do you think he sees like royalties from that? Like, like I mean, he just uh, like it. everyone who tries all these to bakeries it. who do cronuts call them croissant donuts, and they're fine. But has he ever like lent that cronut name to like an airline or a, you I don't know, think another so. bakery? No, I don't think so. So he just has the trademark, and then you have to go to his place. Right. I mean, yeah. and plus he, he he's opened up so many of them now. They're all they're everywhere. But this was an overnight sensation. I mean, I was trying to figure out like. Grub Street wrote the first article about the Cronut, and I think it might have come out the day before it, the Cronut was released. Like, I think they got in there and, like, this is, like, New York Magazine's food blog, but, like, they wrote, it will be available tomorrow. That was the last line, and it made me think that they, because I don't remember in the moment, but I think that they got in and got to check it out. But essentially, it's a, it's a, it's a donut made from croissant dough, laminated dough, that's deep fried and then piped with, a, a like, a Tahitian vanilla cream. And is there a jam element too? I can't remember. It doesn't really depends on the cronut, but it's delicious. Yeah. <laughs> you know what it's, rem- it's reminiscent of is Nola Donuts in Portland does something similar. Oh, that's lasant, really good. right? Yeah. God, I love I love those lasants. Yeah, that was the best thing when we were there the other day. I, I agree. Oh, you went? Yeah, we were there together. Oh, well, you man. went. We yeah. didn't go the other day. I mean, we went together, but I've gone many times it was since. This year, though, right? Uh, it might have been the year before, but I've, mm. I, I've gone many times since because I really like that lasant. Lasant. Uh, number three for me, I'm going to branch out, uh, in terms of, in terms of geography here and no, I'm not. It's a San Francisco restaurant and it's uh mission Chinese food. Do, should we just pause a second and say, was San Francisco the most influential food city of the decade? I know LA has been having like the past two, three years have been owned by LA, right. but we do have what? Three San Francisco restaurants on this list. Is that a fluke? Uh, no. For many years, I thought they were the best food city. Yeah. In America. Well, Mission Chinese food to me 
it, it might even be the most influential restaurant of the past 10 years. I'm not sure. Oh. I, I think, I think it's the one that a lot of chefs look to and we're like, Oh, that's pretty cool. You know, they, so essentially chef Danny Bowen and a few other people, um, who had run a cart called mission street food branched out into cooking essentially like twisted versions of Chinese American takeout. And Danny was very passionate about this. He loved Chinese takeout and he, you know, worked really hard to figure out ways to sort of twist these dishes in fun ways and make them kind of exciting and new again. And then they served the food inside of a, not a defunct old Chinese restaurant, but an actual working Chinese restaurant where you could at times get both menus or sometimes it would just be mission Chinese food. Sometimes it would be the, the old Chinese restaurant. And so the vibe was like the, you cannot create the vibe of a decades old Chinese American dive the way they did just by taking over this space. Um, my meal there was like my first meal there was, I don't know if it was life change or anything, but it was so exciting. And I do love Chinese takeout. So it spoke to me quite a bit. The, um, you know, eventually Danny moved to New York and my meals at mission Chinese food after that were fine. Um, you know, it was like the same menu, but there just wasn't as much polish behind some of the dishes and he's had his ups and downs in New York. It seems like he's settled in there fine, but what they were doing in San Francisco was really important and influential. So that's number three for me. I went maybe a year and a half ago all, when all the, when everything had died down, my meal, there's some dishes that were inedible. Like yeah. I re- really didn't like my meal at Mission Chinese. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't have had this. And I know the fact, you know, I wouldn't even have thought of it as being influential or important. Maybe because I was influenced by how bad my meal was there. But think about, um, What's the restaurant, uh, uh, Ludo Lefebvre's restaurant in L.A.? Petit Trois. Petit Trois, where they opened inside of this strip mall and left the, you know, some of the signage up. Or, you know, it's kind of hard oh, to tell. I love that. I love Petit Trois and Trois Mac. All right. That, well, that could be your pick for number three. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's uh, uh, John and Vinny from Animal, and it's Ludo. And that restaurant, to me, just the, like, we're going to take over the strip mall space. We're not going to change anything about the external decor. I mean, even here in Portland, Gato Gato, you know, the way that they set up that restaurant, taking over an old Vietnamese pho place and, you know, not changing much about the external signs. That feels like a little Mission Chinese influence to it, right. to me. Uh, so my number two, I took a little bit of liberties here because Gary and I sort of agreed ahead of time that we would only include restaurants that opened from 2010 to 2000 and end of 2019. But this restaurant opened in December in 2009, and for me, I have to sneak it in because there's no way it would have made a list of the best, most influential <laughs> restaurants of the aughts because it had literally just opened. Nobody knew about it. That restaurant is Franklin Barbecue, and it would actually be my pick for number one, but we tossed a coin and Gary got to choose number one. So Franklin Barbecue is Aaron Franklin's barbecue restaurant in Austin, Texas, and, you know, I think it's probably safe to say he's influenced an entire generation of barbecue pitmasters. Every city in America now has like a new generation of barbecue restaurants that are mainly primarily Texas style barbecue places. And in by and large, that means they're sort of imitating Franklin 
either because they've eaten there or because they've read his cookbook, which is as influential as the restaurant. And here in Portland, I think every major new barbecue place would, you know, if they were being honest with themselves, would give a big nod to him and, and to that cookbook. And it's pretty radically changed how we think about barbecue in America from being this sort of rustic thing where you might, you might go to Austin, but then you're going to travel outside of Austin to go to some old place. Now we think of barbecue as being a lot more urban and we also expect things like brisket that's extremely tender and juicy and flavorful. Whereas before brisket, maybe it'd be a little bit dry, you know, Uh, he's radically changed the barbecue game. Now, you could make the argument that that's for better and worse because barbecue historically has been a sort of poor Southern thing. A lot of African-American pitmasters have been kind of written out of barbecue history over the, over time. And Franklin has become the sort of global fashion. I think yeah. Bon Appetit wrote, this is the best barbecue in America six or seven years ago or whenever it was. And, you know, I don't know. Is that good? Is that bad? I'm not sure. I guess it's probably more or less bad, but <laughs> he did. He, I think he has improved the quality level of barbecue in America by several steps through his, the success of his restaurant and the success of his cookbook. Would you have picked them? You, you weren't including I, them. I, so. I, I did not include him or the restaurant on my initial list. I, what I, when you mentioned, well, when you mentioned him, it surprised me a little bit. But I understand you made a great case for including Franklin Barbecue as high as it is. Um, I, part of it is I, I went there to Austin last year, uh, 2018, and I didn't get to eat any meat because I was just curious about what it's like to stand in line at Austin, you know, Franklin Barbecue. So I stood in line for half an hour. I was kind of curious how much I'd move also in a half an hour. I moved like six inches. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I don't know. And I, but I had this year at Feast Portland. There was an event called Frank, uh, Franklin Barbecue and Friends, and I had the brisket, but he, instead of using Creekstone, like he used Creekstone in Austin, he used Snake River Farm Wagyu. It was the most, <laughs> I can understand why everyone loves his barbecue, because it was life-altering. Yeah. It was fantastic. Yeah. So I, I said, yeah, well, yeah. I'm not, plus, I'm not a big barbecue guy in general. You are. Yeah, I am, and I just don't think there's been another restaurant in America this decade that has directly influenced so many other restaurants. I mean, it's probably no exaggeration to say that there are four, maybe five eating establishments, because they're mostly food carts in Portland, that took their entire playbook from Franklin, from you know the way they smoke their meat to how they serve it, because Franklin also started as a food cart. Um, and I, if you just extrapolate that across America, it could be dozens. It could be over a hundred restaurants that ate at that, where the chef ate at that restaurant and had a life altering experience and decided to do something similar in their hometown. I would say that, you know what? I'd make the case that Dominic Ansel and his Cronut was more influential, was the most influential restaurant. It's not really a restaurant because Dominic Ansel Cronin influenced the creation of the Cruffin, which <laughs> became another offshoot uh, when Rye Steven was was working at um, Mr. Holmes Bakehouse. But still, that might just be a half dozen bakeries in America that specialize in laminated, oh, fried laminated but, but dough. It, but but it, shone the, it shined the light on bakeries just in general. I mean, bakeries became a thing last yeah. decade. Yeah. So, I don't know. 
But okay. But number one. What's your number one? Well, number one, well, when I initially created this list, I, I, I knew what I wanted to have at number one, but it was what well, there was a choice between two restaurants. And I, and I I couldn't figure out which one I would choose. I talked to Jeremy Rapinich when we were doing um, when he we we were talking about the world's most influential restaurants, and I talked to him about this. Then I talked to um, Bill Addison about this over dinner, also, and I didn't know which to go with. And I took what they had to say, and I and I kind of maybe went the opposite way. <laughs> and I went with um, the Gray, Mashma Bailey's The Gray in Savannah, Georgia, uh, versus. June Baby at Jordan's Place in Seattle's neighborhood of Ravana. I've been to June Baby. I thoroughly enjoyed my meal there. I've never eaten Mashma Bailey's food at the Gray in Savannah, Georgia. But you have a black woman doing kind of like elevated southern food in a bu- old bus terminal that was segregated back in the day. And just the circumstances of the gray made me put it ahead of June Baby. Um, okay, big caveat. I haven't been to the gray either. But if you're making the argument that the most interesting and compelling thread of American dining of the past 10 years has been African-American chefs reclaiming Southern food as their own, I would agree with you. I would personally, just because of my geographic proximity to Seattle and two stellar meals there in the past couple of years, pick June Baby. Um, I've also eaten at Kwame Onwache's restaurant, um, Kith and Kin in D.C. We've talked about that before. Now, it's a tough call for me having not eaten at the Gray, and I think it's a great pick, but I personally would have picked June Baby just based on how exciting the food is, the story that Eduardo's telling, um, Anyway, yeah. It's a female chef doing Southern food in the South, in Savannah, Georgia. Yeah, I mean, I don't disagree with you there at all. And the fact that they took over a Greyhound station has its own parallels to the civil rights movement, which are pretty cool. I would love to eat there. Um, I guess we'll just have to say that maybe it's 1A and 1B, you okay. know, and, and, and with Kith and Kin thrown in there too, and just the, the general movement of black chefs reclaiming Southern food, because at the start of the decade, Southern food and Paula Dean were pretty synonymous. And then we find out Paula Dean is this closet racist and <laughs> all her disgusting yeah. buttery food leads to her hawking some medicine for lowering your blood pressure or whatever it is. Um, so, Yes, that for me, I would agree, is my favorite thread of American dining in the past 10 years. And I'm glad that you're honoring the gray with our number one pick. Okay, great. I just want to go over some of my... um, I I actually created a a list, a top 10 list that actually had 12. (laughs) (laughs) But I could only pick five of them. I've got a few honorable mentions too. You want to hit me with yours first? Um, Tied at number 10 were Bennu and Atelier Cran. Yeah, Benu, of course, we've got in situ on the list. So uh, Cosme would be nine. Eight would be the Filipino food of Tom Kunanen at Batsane in uh, Washington, D.C. Yeah, there's an argument for that. Seven was next in Chicago. And six was um, Nikki Nakayama's and Naka in Los Angeles. I didn't particularly like my meal there. I mean, it was okay. I mean, I didn't love it. But the fact that a female chef is doing Japanese kaiseki in her own way 
in Los Angeles is just pretty cool. Kaiseki my way. Yeah. Um, my I thought about Carbone, which is this uh, Italian Italian American ish restaurant in New York where the entrees are over the top and the waiters are sort of flamboyant and it's a big production. Um, if only because that restaurant and the group behind it, I think they're called Major Food Group. They ended up taking over the Four Seasons with the grill and the pool. You know, their views have been maybe good for one, not so good for the other. But oh, just... the grill and the pool, I think, are both beloved. Lobster Club, Lobster Room. I've been to all three. Um, lobster, the, the the lobster lobster club, not so much. That's the one that kind of gets ripped. Actually, I was thinking of actually including the grill. Again, it was Jeremy Rappinich from Robertport was the one who kind of mentioned the grill to me as that over-the-top, grandiose sort of dining that happened toward the end of Yeah, and I think decade. this is like interesting because we talk, about, we talk about people not wanting to embrace fine dining, and yet you're willing to go out and drop $120 on a chop or something right. if the experience is fun and exciting. I guess they also run Dirty French and Teresi Italian Specialties, yeah. two other restaurants. So, yeah. You know... Um, so that's my my first honorable mention. Um, I would also point to um, Husk, uh, which I think is in, only in Nashville now. Is that right? Uh, Husk started as Sean Brock's restaurant in uh, um, in South Carolina, and it, Charleston, Charleston, South Carolina. And he left. He did leave, but he's got a new restaurant called Audrey. His restaurants inspired a sort of generation of Southern chefs and. They took local ingredients pretty seriously. They had a great fried chicken skin with honey dish that I thought was pretty remarkable. Um, and did you mention Cosme? Yeah. Cosme being a, a spinoff restaurant from Puyo in Mexico City. It's in New York City. Uh, the corn husk meringue is another sort of signature dish of the decade uh, dessert. And... There's a couple of places that I didn't include just because of our rule about 2010 and later, which I broke with Franklin Barbecue. But I think two restaurants that maybe were more influential than anything on our list huh. are the Momofuku oh. Restaurant Empire, yeah. specifically Noodle Bar and Sambar, I think. Um, one, because they sort of made ramen a hipster thing in America and the other because of that, the large format dining thing that we've talked about before. Um, but these are, that's a, a celebrity chef, David Chang's restaurant group, which is now all over the place. And the other one, um, which you may not have thought of is Zahaf in Philadelphia, which opened before our, this decade. But if you've had a modern quote unquote, modern Israeli restaurant open in your city in the past decade, pro chances are they were thinking about the success of Zahaf. Uh, okay, that's our list. And a couple of things you want to do quickly. Yes. Is since we ended the decade just a few days ago. Yes. I created a list of my most, the, the, my restaurant meals of the decade. And we'll just do it very, very quickly. Number 10, L2O, April 2013. Um, nine, Saison, my first visit in January 2014. Eight, Geranium. In Copenhagen, August of 2018. Atelier Cran is number seven. I, I went like 18 times last decade, but the one in number, March of 2017. Number 12 was just the best. <laughs> well, no, it was March 2017. I went with my friend Karen Brooks on my birthday. So that was a, just a joyous occasion. Six, Lasanque 
in Paris, my first visit back in December 2012. Uh, five, it's a Tokyo restaurant that not many people know about or talk about. It's called a Beast. My, one of my favorite, might be my favorite seafood restaurant in the world. Four is Alano Paris, my first visit back in September of 2015 after Yannick Alano took over for Christian Lesquier, uh, who moved to La Sanc. Uh, Buhel Stone Barns is number three. I went with Peter Cho in Sunyang Park this past summer. Loved it. Number two, my first visit to Le Doyen, which is now Alano Paris at Le Doyen. But back in December 2012, it was Christian Lesquier. And truly memorable meal but my number one meal of all time well it's actually my number one meal of all time even though it's my meal of the decade uh-huh. was central Virgilio martinez's restaurant in oh, um, in lima peru october of 2018 but you know what my favorite culinary experience of the decade and ever in my life happened last decade it happened at Willow's Inn, and it was a, a second annual first harvest dinner back in July of 2013. This was the lineup. Blaine Wetzel from Willow's Inn. Justin Yu, who at the time was at Oxheart. Right. Virgilio Martinez from Central. Dominique Crenn from Atelier Crenn. Christopher Costell from Restaurant Meadowood. And Grant Ackett's from Alenia and Next. That's that a lot just, of... That's just... a lot of chef. That's... It was... Did they have to raise the ceiling? Oh my God, it was fantastic. Just <laughs> the whole experience, good and the bad. Even the bad is still talked to to this day. You made friends at that dinner. I've, oh, heard, yeah. I've heard some stories. Friends for life. That they've, they've, even before <laughs> I knew you, I heard about your I know. adventures. Pretty, cr- pretty crazy. Dinner. Even like this past year, Peter Cho heard about it. For, well, so, from let's the, just say one of the chefs at the dinner, I'm not going to say who. Came to Portland, asked me oh. out to brunch. This is before I knew Gary. And he said to me, do you know Gary the foodie? That's how he started. I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, we don't have to go further than that. I apologize. So, it was my fault. I apologize. And he never accepted my apology. He, I know he listens, so it's probably good. That, I'm sure he'll hear that apology. And No, know, he knows. Like, he Peter knows, told so. me that he, he knows that I apologize. Okay. I mean, yeah, it's one of those things. Um. Still memorable. I loved it. I have a question. Um, neither one of us had a Portland restaurant on our um, on our top ten restaurants of the decade right. for America. Now, I've noticed a couple of lists that have come out have put in, you know, a couple of like like Esquire put out a list the forty most influential restaurants of the decade. I think you mentioned Rob Report had a like restaurants of the decade worldwide. Right. And they flirted with places in Portland, relatively new restaurants. Esquire like did. Han Oak. Yeah. That's right, Esquire did. And Canard. Canard opened in 20, April of 2018, so it's right. still pretty new. Um, I put both of those restaurants on my list of Portland's restaurants of the decade, which you can find at OregonLive.com. I, I would have – I Oak was in my honorable mention – list of for the restaurants of the day well i wanted to ask like if you had to pick one restaurant to 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 you know stand in for portland and maybe have a shot at a restaurant of the decade list would it be han oak well here's the deal from a national perspective yeah i i would it would be han oak but from portland perspective yeah. i think it was whole fast i think whole fast is the most influential restaurant 
of the past decade. All right, sell it. There, there was this pop-up, I, I wouldn't call it revolution, but there was um, pop-up, what, pop-ups were a thing in Portland back in the mid 2000s with the Ripe yeah, Supper Club. Like 2013 to 14. Well, no, no, 2005. We're talking oh, 2005. Right, right. Ripe Supper Club. Yeah, yeah, then yeah, it kind of died. Sure. The pop ups kind of went away, died down. But then Will Price uh, decided to do a pop up before he left for Europe to do stodges at Subteam Deal um, Relay. And I went to the one before he left and I just loved it. And I kept in contact with Will during his couple of month um, stodge tour of Europe. And I said, you know, when, you, when are you coming back? You're going to do a pop-up? You know, when you come back, he says, yeah, I'll do a pop-up very quickly after you get back. So I went to that one. I took my friend Karen Brooks. And Karen loved it. And she wrote a very positive review that appeared in the October issue of Portland Monthly. Then the, in the next month, in November issue, she named Will Price um, Rising Star Chef of that year. And I think that showed other chefs around town who maybe wanted to open up a brick and mortar that maybe one way, one avenue to do this is via pop-ups. And I could maybe point to Coquine. I could maybe even point to Hano. Hano started as, as Stray Dogs back in December of 2014, where they were doing hot dogs, which later morphed into um, Stray Birds, which later moved, morphed into Hanok. You have Nomad. You have um, Deadshot even was a pop-up that now was a part of Holdfast. Uh, there is just Noto. Uh, Do you see Noto Girl? Uh, Berlu. Noto Girl. Noto Girl is one of the best Japanese restaurants in the United States. Yeah. That's start- you and I were at the original pop up back in Yakuza in April yep. 2014. Nomad was April 2014. Berlu. I went, you know, when Vince did his first pop up at Castagna, there was no name to it. There were performance dancers, but no name to it. I still can't scratch my head when I saw performance dancers at Vince's first pop up. But that <laughs> became Jolie Led which is now Berlu, which is your rising star restaurant of the year. That's right. So I just think that, I don't know what would have happened without Holdfast and without Karen writing about it. Hmm. You, you might disagree with I didn't. I never thought about that. Do you think that Peter would agree that Holdfast Dining played a role in him doing a hot dog pop-up? Pop I don't know. I never asked him. I mean, I wonder if it would have happened anyway. I'm not really sure. That's a great question. Um, and I don't know... I, do, I did not put them on my top ten. I have them as sort of an honorable mention. I, I have that, honorable yeah. mentions every, uh, you know, for every one of the restaurants on the list. Um, certainly, they were among the first. They were not actually the first, but they were among the first in the newer crop of pop ups. But they were the first one to get well known, like yeah. re- locally. I think that's fair. That's interesting. My personal pick for number one, just for Portland. We talked about this via text, but I, it's a place that. I've had my struggles with, I've had meals there that I didn't like, just like some of these other places that we've talked about in, you know, on our America list, but it's Ava jeans. And that's a restaurant that is, it's Italian ostensibly, but mostly it's known for really embracing vegetables in a sort of like pushing farm to table to whatever the next step is, which seems to be, you know, obsessing over certain farms and, certain types of produce that are, you know, not common household items, but just, you know, falling in love with a certain type of long bean or a certain berry and building dishes around that. And I think that maybe Ava Jean's and, you know, their, their sister restaurant Tusk um, 
has been the restaurant where maybe it's the restaurant that more chefs have like moved to Portland to work at over the past seven years or what. I don't know. I'm not saying that for a fact, but I remember talking to um, Ross Effinger and uh, Joe Marie Patino before they moved to Eastern Oregon to open their pizzeria, Gold Room Pizza. And the, the sort of tale they spun about working at Ava Jean's and learning about local farms. Uh, I just had this image of like, you know, Portland cooks sitting around a fire on a farm and talking about local produce. And, you know, it's a little goofy and a little maybe passe because farm to table has been a thing on the West coast for 50 years almost, but it still felt very romantic. And I could imagine if you were a young 25 year old chef who recently graduated from culinary school, that that would be a place I would want to like a move to Portland to work at and B I'd want to emulate when I open a restaurant of my own somewhere else. I'm not surprised you have Ava Jean's number one. The reason surprises me because I thought you would say, well, it's, I mean, that was one of the first restaurants in Portland that spent, well, Lucier was the first, but they failed miserably, but they were successful at creating this restaurant and they spent a lot of money building out this restaurant. It's a beautiful, gorgeous, multi-million dollar restaurant. And it's like, but they did it on, to, to, they, it wasn't just the way it looked, huh. but the, yeah, yeah, the yeah. food attitude, in fact, the, the food didn't suck like it did at Lucier. Um, so that's, it was, and it was ridiculously successful from basically day one. Yeah. And to this day, it's still successful because it's, it's got that grand formula. Well, we for don't Portland. see their books, but they are busy yeah. when you go by. But yeah. it's really interesting that they, I don't, I don't see it that way. That's not the reason I would pick them. Uh, I know I, I see that argument about this is the first restaurant where someone pumped a lot of money into it, but it was still kind of an indie movie. Like, yeah. And I, I think I kind of even wrote that in my in my roundup. But now I'm going off on a different uh, diversion. So. But they weren't the first to do this vegetable thing. I mean, you even mentioned the fact that other people have did it here in Portland way before they did. Maybe yeah, they just did but they did it in a different way. They did okay. it in the way that Coquine does it. The God, way that... I really don't like their vegetables. <laughs> Uh, you know, pasta. best pasta in the city. I think it is. Yeah. Except when Coquine does their Monday pasta pop up. <laughs> uh, well, that's enough chat about a decade in dining. We've eaten a lot of great meals and, uh, I really appreciate everybody listening. Thank We're going to have more pods in the new year. Bye. Talk soon. <laughs>